The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Media. Jim Morrison died at the age of 27, and he lived a life in close proximity to scandal. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the number of sensational, politically ripe execution scenes he would translate from a promotional video to his live stage show. Jim Morrison shot dead in front of thousands of screaming teens. Five more would be the number of confrontational performances by the Living Theater that he would attend during one week in February of 1969, and they would inspire him to shock and to awe. Another one would be the number of Jim's hairdressers, who was among the unlucky friends murdered by the bloodthirsty Manson family on Cielo Drive in L.A.'s Benedict Canyon. Two more would be the number of googly eyes that rolled around in the head of the wizard, a.k.a. Charles Manson, that stared back at him during a private doors rehearsal. And 18 would be the number of months he had left to live after a beach boy, tired of Jim's rude macho poses, took him outside the club to give him a piece of his mind and a piece of his fist. On this, our fifth episode of season two, on-stage executions, bloodthirsty gangs, Dennis Wilson's fists of fury, and Jim Morrison lost in another fantasy. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
you'd think it was a snuff film. In it, he's tied to a post. The knots of rope are sloppy, but they're taut. His face is dotted with stubble, grimaces. He grits his teeth, shot by an unseen firing squad. Slumped over in his wool shearling jacket, dark blood runs in a thick dangling stream from his mouth as his head hangs lifeless. Blood splatters the flowers below him. Jim Morrison is dead. The promotional film for The Doors' 1968 single, The Unknown Soldier, did the band no favors when it came to getting their song heard. Radio stations had already refused to play the song due to its political content. Not happy to have just one song banned by American radio, Jim had doubled down and increased his band's market share on controversy. Breakfast where the news is read, television, children fed, unborn living, living dead, bullet strikes the helmet's head. But those who felt politically aligned with the song's lyrical content sought out the single, and despite the backlash, it became the group's fourth top 40 hit when it peaked at number 39 on the charts. Anti-Vietnam War songs had begun to transcend the folk singer world the year before, in 1967 with Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant, Nina Simone's Backlash Blues, and Country Joe and the Fishes feel like I'm fixing to die. In 68, a relatively unknown Bob Seger released two plus two equals question mark a searing anti-war rocker that contradicted a stance he had struck a few years earlier with Ballad of the Yellow Beret. A self-described protest against protesters song that Seeger wrote and credited to the pseudonym D. Dodger. The world was a ball of confusion, and feelings of paranoia, distrust, and frustration began to seep into three and a half minute rock and roll singles. But The Doors were the highest profile band in 1968 to make a political statement on the top 40 charts. They would recreate the execution scene from the promotional film live in concert at venues like the Hollywood Bowl. John would light up his snare with rapid-fire drum rolls. Robbie would point his guitar square at Jim. He'd hold it there, his red Gibson SG, lightweight, flat, aimed at Jim's head. The band would grab a suspended moment of silence, hold on to it, bait the crowd, and then... Jim's body dropped to the floor of the stage, like his mass had suddenly vanished, like he'd been caught off at the knees, like the stage had given out below him. Jim disappeared, replaced by a pile of flesh and clothes, a flash, a blink, a shot. The Unknown Soldier was yet another way in which Jim distanced himself from his father, politically, artistically. Jim Morrison was James Dean to George Morrison's Jim Backus. Jim was George's rebel. The way George saw it, Jim had no cause. He rebelled to rebel, to make waves, to be different, to not be his father. And there was something deep-seated and oppositional in Jim, George thought, that caused him to act out for no other reason than for the thrill of doing it. But George wasn't exactly the most supportive father either. When Jim first wrote his parents to let him know about the band he had formed in Venice Beach, his father didn't mince words in his response. You should give up any idea of singing or any connection with the music group because of what I consider to be a complete lack of talent in this direction, George Morrison wrote. Jim threw the letter away and never wrote to his father again. To Jim, George just didn't understand. He was out of touch, a company man, a military man, a staunchly traditional man's man, part of Jim's problem, part of the problem. Case in point, George Morrison was commander of the Navy fleet during the Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 1964. 
What happened in the Gulf of Tonkin was a critical turning point for the United States' involvement in the Vietnam War. Two incidents with North Vietnamese ships in the water, one real and one falsely reported, gave justification to President Lyndon Johnson that the U.S. needed to step up. It was like sticking a half-submerged leg in even deeper muck. President Johnson ordered airstrikes. He appealed to the American people on national television back at a time when interrupting live TV throughout the country was a major event. Congress voted to conduct military operations in Southeast Asia, even though it hadn't actually declared war. To Johnson, in the U.S. government, the Americans had been the victims of unprovoked attacks. Paranoia ran rampant. Fear was a catalyst. Misinformation drove the boat. Later, privately, Lyndon Johnson would say, for all I know, our movie was shooting at whales out there. And out there, in August of 1964, George Morrison paced the length of the aircraft carrier he commanded, where he controlled the U.S. Navy presence off the coast of Vietnam. The rains had brought some relief to the sweltering temperatures. The heat and humidity still felt overbearing to a man with Florida blood. It was enough to mix a guy up, to reduce his brain to a cluttered mush, enough to blur the line between what was real and what was heat-induced fantasy. George Morrison hadn't spoken to his son, Jim Morrison, in so long that it was starting to feel like he didn't have a son anymore. Like maybe he had just imagined that he had a son. He remembered the times he had played the piano for his children, for Jim, and encouraged them to take an interest in music. But Jim's idea of music wasn't music at all. And that noisy, shouty, scratchy blues music he insisted on listening to as a teenager was primitive in George Morrison's eyes. Jim needed some refinement. Jim needed some taste. He certainly wasn't going to find that at UCLA, where he was wasting time and money making pointless movies, half-assing it. Jim didn't heed his professor's advice, just like he didn't heed the advice of anyone older than himself. Double splice his film edits so that the film wouldn't get caught in the projector. His film ripped apart when he tried to show it to the class. George Morrison had to put Jim out of his mind. Thinking of him wound him up too much, and the heat was enough, the humidity was enough. But whatever was happening off the coast of Vietnam was enough. Were they being fired at? Were they firing back? He'd do what he did at home with Jim, with his kids. He'd stand up tall and straight like the father he was, the authority figure he was, the American he was, and he'd make himself known. He ordered the USS Maddox and the USS Turner Joy to ride up against the shores of Vietnam and make sure that every single Vietnamese person standing on the coast saw that goddamn flag. In 1968, when Jim and his father were long past even acknowledging each other's existence, the escalation and confusion in the world continued, providing easy fodder for protesters, activists, and artists in America who just wanted peace. Perhaps an idealized, hard-to-actualize concept, but peace nonetheless. It's what the human being at Golden Gate Park was all about, in the summer of love, and the following year, Woodstock. In 68, nearly half a million U.S. troops were involved in Vietnam. It was the most expensive year of the war, and the deadliest. The U.S. saw almost 17,000 casualties that year, and the South Vietnamese lost over 27,000. If that weren't fodder enough, in November that year, Richard Nixon was elected president of the United States. Tricky Dick moving on up, the poster boy for crooked politicians. Nixon talked about withdrawal from Vietnam, but the lies to the American public piled on. Whatever protracted withdrawal of troops was counterbalanced by even more covert operations and deceptions. 
The peace-loving flower child movement had its boogeyman in Nixon, a snake oil salesman who said one thing and did another, just like his predecessor, but with less gravitas. Even before Nixon entered the picture, the Doors saw hypocrisy, saw unnecessary bloodshed and bigotry and chaos. They could be political, they could take a stand. They were a melting pot of American music after all, jazz, blues, beat poetry, beach party music, and their frontman used his microphone to protest. But Jim wasn't always protesting against social injustice and mass murder and political corruption. And Jim's protests were often more about himself than anyone else or any cause. Often, they were cries for attention from an ego-ravished drunk at the back of the club. And sometimes, the only way to bring him back down to earth was to drag him into the night air and sock it to him one time. Dennis Wilson, the beach boy, tapped on Jimbo's shoulder to get his attention. Did you hear what I said? Dennis had a shout to be heard over the sound of the band. Two semi-hollow body electric guitars, organ, bass, drums, the rattling of the girls in cages overhead, not to mention the sound Jimbo was making as he heckled the singer on stage at the whiskey. Jimbo, chuckling to himself, turned his head to face Dennis. The bemused look on his face gradually turned into a scowl. Goddamn Dennis Wilson harshing his buzz. Leave it to him to be the party pooper. And didn't he have a wave to catch somewhere or something? Fucking jerk off. Dennis was already three sheets to the wind, and he thought it was Jim Morrison making the ruckus. Though it was Jim Morrison's shoulder he was tapping on. Jim and Jimbo were looking more and more alike these days, and Dennis's beer-soaked brain couldn't tell the difference. Jimbo offered up a weak facial expression, unimpressed, bothered, stoned. A facial expression that simply said, what, motherfucker? Dennis had had enough of Jimbo's macho bullshit, his lack of respect, his annoying banshee wail as he launched heckles at the stage. He pushed his face in close to Jimbo's, thinking it was Jim's, went in way past the socially accepted distance for the faces of two people who barely know each other, and repeated his question. I said, why don't we take this outside? Jimbo took him up on the offer. The two spilled out from the confines of the Whiskey A Go-Go and out onto the sidewalk of Sunset Boulevard. The L.A. air warm, their ears still ringing from the music inside. Jim often returned to the scene of the crime, the whiskey, where he'd gotten his start. Locked in the door's career, solidified his place in the pantheon of rock gods, the place where he intentionally tried to ruin it all. And that was standard operating procedure these days. Jimbo would meet him there, have a few pops, heckle a few bands. They both felt so untouchable, so invincible. And they would smell the smell of the room, feel what it felt like. Jim would relive the moment in his mind, in his fantasy. He could come and go as he pleased, stroll down memory lane like a tightrope walking boss. On this night, it was just Jimbo doing the tightrope walking as Jim's proxy. Dennis called him out on it. Dennis Wilson was often classified as a sweetheart, a bearded bohemian teddy bear, the kind of glass half full optimist who would take one look at someone like Charles Manson and see not a deranged psychopath, 
but an artist, a musician, struggling to let his song be heard. And that's not untrue, but it's also true that Dennis Wilson was relegated to the back of the Beach Boys pecking order, metaphorically and physically. He was the drummer at the back of the stage, the real-life model for the beach life the Beach Boys sang about in their formative songs. He wasn't taken seriously as an artist the way his genius composer brother Brian Wilson was, or the way his brother Carl Wilson was with his angelic voice. He was the surfer boy who looked good in a white t-shirt, unbuttoned Pendleton and khakis, sun-kissed, windswept blonde hair blown dramatically to one side. Eye candy. So while Dennis played the lighthearted Ah Shucks beefcake teddy bear role, deep down, he had some serious reservations about the typecasting. He was more than the role he'd been asked to play. He could write songs, he could sing, he could front a band, he could be a somebody. Some nights, he felt like a nobody in a famous band of somebodies. And this loudmouth Morrison, shit, he swore it was Morrison, this overrated loudmouth, was flaunting his somebody status on this particular night. The entitled vibe just sucked. Don't get Dennis wrong, Jim was alright, the doors were alright. One of the songs he would write for the Beach Boys Sunflower album in 1970, Slip On Through, was a hat tip to the doors, break on through to the other side. And the feeling was mutual. Jim loved one of the Beach Boys' most recent records, Wild Honey. But this wasn't about the music. This was about the guy he mistook for Jim being unreasonable, and about Dennis feeling inadequate. The emotional cocktail was simply too potent. And soon, Dennis was waving at Jimbo to follow him out of the door that led them outside. As soon as they exited the whiskey, Dennis shoved him. Jimbo scooted back on the heels of his boots and hung onto a parking meter so that he wouldn't topple over. The fuck? Dennis must have been high, Jimbo thought. He must have been so stoned, stoned out of his gourd. His brother Brian had gone over the deep end, half deaf from an abusive father and now half crazy from fistfuls of Osley tabs. Brian was in a dark room somewhere in Southern California, suffering from auditory hallucinations. And Jimbo wouldn't be surprised if Dennis was about to ride that wave too. Dennis shoved him again, pushing Jimbo further away from the whiskey. People shuffled by on sunset and gave little paws to the golden rock god and the bearded beach drummer engaging in a little fisticuffs. Jimbo put up his hands. A white flag laughed it off. Nah, Dennis wasn't going to let Jimbo get away with being an asshole tonight. Dennis looked in his eyes and saw Morrison's eyes. Self-righteous, self-important, entitled, spoiled military brat, Florida punk, heckling Rick and the Ravens as a nobody was one thing. Heckling an up-and-coming band on Newcomer's Night as a somebody was just fucking rude. Hey, man. The words just tumbled out of Jimbo's mouth like they were squirreled away there for moments like this. Moments when he was called out and had to pause his fantasy world for a moment, stick his head back into the reality everyone else was in, and beg for forgiveness in his patronizing way. Hey man, I, I was just having fun. Dennis took two good-sized strides toward Jimbo, cocked his right arm back, and swung his fist in hard to Jimbo's chest. Jimbo's puffy shirt fluttered and collapsed like a punctured hot air balloon. His ass was on the pavement. He gasped for breath, the warm LA air dry and stagnant. Jesus, he thought. You are Dennis Wilson. You're so much tougher than you look. Jimbo pushed himself up with his hands, dusted the ass of his pants off, and attempted to strike a boxing pose. When he had seen Muhammad Ali strike at a fight a few years ago, before he refused to be drafted into the army and saw his career go on hold. Just like Jimbo, just like Jim, Ali did whatever the fuck he wanted. Jimbo got into the pose, bent his knees slightly, thought he was bobbing a bit, arms bent, fists balled up. 
You fuck, you beach bum fuck. He yelled at Dennis. Go back to Hawthorne, you fucking loser. And then Dennis hit him again. Dennis left the strip and went back to helping his friend Charles Manson with some of the new songs he was working on. Dennis had first met Manson when he picked up some girls hitchhiking on the side of the road. Dennis had a soft spot for hitchhikers and an even softer spot for female hitchhikers. He was recently divorced and ready for whatever jumped in the car. The hitchhikers turned out to be some of the girls in the Manson family. Soon, Manson and upwards of 20 girls were crashing at Dennis's Sunset Boulevard house, and Manson and Dennis were bonding over music and being underdogs. And the girls took care of whatever other desire would suddenly come over Dennis, whatever he needed. Dennis called Manson the wizard. Dennis wasn't the only one with a soft spot for hitchhikers. Jimbo had that soft spot, too. And one day, stopping to pick up a couple of teenagers on the side of La Cienega led him back to Manson's den at the old Spawn Ranch. The family had relocated to the far edge of L.A. County after their freeloading at Dennis's mansion cost their host upwards of $100,000 in food, medical bills, and property damage. Jimbo and Manson bonded over some LSD tabs and a couple of beers. Manson told Jimbo he was an artist, a musician. He was working with the Beach Boys. Neil Young gave him some advice. Manson said he'd love to work with Hendrix. And the wind blew through the open western geography of the ranch, the vegetation, the same bland shade of taupe as the dirt and the dust. Jimbo said he'd help Manson get another foot in the door. Neil Young, Hendrix, those cats are cool. What about the doors? Jimbo knew those guys. Next time Charlie was free, Jimbo would borrow Jim Morrison's Mustang, swing by and pick him up, and they'd go watch the Doors rehearse. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Jim Morrison grabbed his wild locks of hair in his hand, pulled them tight into a makeshift ponytail, and started to saw away with a pair of scissors. He tried to see what he was doing in the bathroom mirror, but it was nearly impossible. So this came down entirely to feel. He unclenched a few fingers to fish around for any loose strands of hair that had escaped his claw grasp and retightened his fist. The scissors were an old metal pair, the pin barely holding the two blades together. And when the sawing motion seemed ineffective, he attempted to cut with the blades as if his thick mane was nothing more than a few pieces of paper. And that's all anyone wanted to talk about. Jim Morrison's hair. Girls talked about how long and foxy it was. The band talked about how dirty and greasy it was. The press always referred to it when they wrote about a door show. Rednecks called him a pussy for having hair so long. Hippies saw a kindred spirit and insisted Jim fight for their causes. People the age of Jim's parents would pass him on the street and cast sour glances in his direction. And that wasn't how a man was supposed to wear his hair. So you know what? Fuck it. Small talk. He just cut it all off. And that'll give him something to talk about. The media had a field day. It was all they talked about, Jim's short hair. He had shocked them all once again. As soon as he chopped the long flowing excess from the back of his head, he felt a weight lifted, but it looked horrible, a hack job. Indeed, it looked like a five-year-old had cut Jim's hair while he was sleeping. This was the kind of problem that Jay Sebring would have to fix. Hairdressers weren't considered celebrities until Jay Sebring came to town. Jay was a self-made stylist who moved to Los Angeles after serving in the Korean War. He changed his name, changed his identity. In LA, you can do that, reinvent yourself, break on through to your own fantasy. And the other side was where the good stuff was at. He took classes at a beauty school, honed his craft, and opened a cutting edge salon that was more European than American, just like Elmer Valentine had done when he brought go-go culture to the whiskey. He was no longer John Cummer from Birmingham, Alabama. He liked fast cars, so he changed his name to match the name of a popular raceway in Florida. He liked women and was a champion of discretion, so he built a VIP room in the back of his salon that doubled as a private pad for clandestine hookups. The celebrities flocked to Jay, the men especially. Men like Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Jim Morrison. Jim's lion mane hairstyle that sat upon his often shirtless torso was a Jay Sebring piece de resistance. The word spread. He opened a Sebring salon in New York City. London, Hollywood came calling. Jay added lead hair designer to his resume. Vegas came calling. 
Soon he was styling the heads of the rap pack, Sinatra running vocal scales while the smoke from his camel wrapped its way around the room. The most indelible friendship Jay maintained, however, was with actress Sharon Tate. She would walk into a room and do that thing with her hand and her hair and all would be right in the world. The two were romantically involved at first, but when Sharon met director Roman Polanski, she and Jay downshifted the besties, inseparable besties. Jay would do anything for Sharon. He'd drive her around LA in his GT350. He'd take her shopping, get drinks, catch a movie, sit in blissful silence, put a record on. He'd listen to her complain about the long days on the set of the latest feature she was shooting. He'd even put himself in between Sharon and the cold-blooded Manson family the night they broke into 10050 Cielo Drive, knives out, on strict orders to kill everyone inside. They had tacos that night with friends and went back to Sharon's. The three Manson family members, Patricia Krenwinkel, Susan Atkins, and Tex Watson, entered the house out of nowhere once it was so dark outside that even shadows didn't exist. The Manson family told them all they were going to die, right now, inside this house. Jay begged them, begged for Sharon's life. She was nearly nine months pregnant, and they must spare her life and the life of her unborn child. Jay begged them, he insisted. Tex Watson shot Jay first, and then they killed the rest of them. Jim Morrison didn't know much about Charles Manson or his so-called family living out at Spawn Ranch. Jim knew him as the wizard, the scrawny bearded guy with the sunken in eyes and oddly agreeable demeanor. He was Jimbo's friend. Maybe friend was too much of a stretch. It was hard saying how many friends Jimbo really had. Jimbo showed up one afternoon at the Doors rehearsal space in Hollywood. And Jimbo was always showing up at the rehearsal space. So much that sometimes Jim imagined he was there even when he wasn't. Like some sort of false memory. The band was playing five to one when the door opened and Jimbo lumbered in, the wizard skulking behind him. The old get old and the young get stronger. It may take a week and it may take longer. Jimbo hoisted two fists holding six packs into the air, like some triumphant Viking back from pillaging a nearby fridge, and then started banging his head and attempting to play some remedial air guitar. Unlike Jim, Jimbo hadn't cut his hair off, and it appeared like it hadn't seen a shower in weeks. Standing next to the wizard, Jimbo looked like a giant. He plucked a can from the six pack like a grape from a cluster and stuffed it into the wizard's hands. Jim kept singing, your ballroom days are over, baby. Night is drawing near. And the wizard popped open his beer and stood across the room, staring at Jim. Jim would routinely close his eyes while he sang, really get lost in the song. But at the moment, he could feel the wizard's vacant gaze. Those sunken eyes, like little black holes with mini white dots lost in the middle. His long hair and beard scruff, unkempt and unpredictable. He made no movement, just stood against the wall with an unblinking stare while Jimbo, seated on the floor with his legs crossed, nodded his head to the beat drunkenly. The two were a study in contrast. Jim sang on, shadows of the evening crawl across the years. He opened his eyes again and the wizard was just finishing a swig from the beer can, eyes still on Jim, and now his head began to move a little, bob up and down with the song's rhythm. As the wizard's head began to bob more and more emphatically, the corners of his mouth began to twist upwards. A smile was forming, his eyes still sunken and still black. Five to one, baby, one in five. No one here gets out alive. 
Jimbo let loose a loud burp, tossed his empty beer can on the floor and reached for another one. And the wizard was in the groove now, locked in, the crazed smile still planted on his face. The drums, the bass, chugged on. Jim thought it was eerie. The dude was a little on the quiet side, but this was just fucking weird. The other guys in the band felt it too, and they started to rush the tempo of the song just so they could get through it and end it. And maybe Jim could talk with Jimbo and move the wizard along, drive him back to the ranch. He was harboring some strange mojo. The band rapped. Jim humored the wizard and said he'd listen to his demo tape the next time Jimbo brought him by. And everyone left. And Jim didn't know if he would ever see the wizard again. He didn't care either. Jim Morrison was sitting in the front row when the cops shut down the show. Some of the actors were still on the stage. Many of them had made their way into the audience. They were all in various stages of undress. Some had removed their shirts, their pants. Others had stripped bare and were covering their private bits with their hands. Jim looked around and marveled at the stage of flesh, the audience of flesh, the sea of flesh. People stripped to their bare essence, all inhibitions gone, clothing gone, all social norms and niceties gone. It was unexpected, thrilling. And the cops surrounded the place, the audience and the actors, in an impatient cop stance, rhythmically pounding nightsticks in their palms, loudly chewing wads of gum, completely unfazed by the rampant nudity. And they repeated their order for the show to cease and started tossing items of clothing at the actors, and at some of the audience members who had followed the actors' lead and started to strip too. The audience had been told, coaxed, provoked, challenged. The actors had told the audience they were all going to get naked and take the performance to the streets. And this was a collective experience. They were all in this together. No one here gets out without tuning in and turning on. In fact, the audience had been goaded all night. And the performers chanted repeated phrases addressed audience members. They struck up conversation. They encouraged the spectators to repeat their missives of anti-capitalism, anti-war, and pro-grass. I don't know how to stop the war, as they stated. And audience members stood up and said it with them. I'm not allowed to smoke marijuana, they stated. And audience members stood up and said that with them. I'm not allowed to take my clothes off, they stated. And audience members stood up, and then they said that with them, too. And the performers were in the audience. The audience was on the stage. There was no plot, no protagonists. They were all the plot. They were all the protagonists. It was the opposite of Broadway, the opposite of dinner theater, the opposite of just about any performance anyone in the room at the University of Southern California had ever attended. They broke the fourth wall. There was no fourth wall. Jim was so excited about the concept of the living theater coming to town, he prepared appropriately. He snatched up front row tickets to each of the five shows when it was announced that the radical groundbreaking troupe would play the USC campus on an American tour after self-imposed exile in Europe. The 32-member troupe would perform Paradise Now, a four-hour experimental theater piece. Jim could hardly wait. He had learned about the living theater from a friend who had talked about attending a performance and how it changed his life. How he took his clothes off on stage, took home a dozen people he had never met before, had an epiphany about his life, went back to his stiff day job the next day and told his boss to shove it. Jim craved that feeling. He had to feel that feeling. 
The Living Theater was the creation of Judith Molina and Julian Beck, two artists who met before the age of 20 while living in New York City. They loved de Kooning, Pollock, T.S. Eliot. They married in 1949, around the time they decided to launch a new theater company. The Living Theater, or simply The Living as it was sometimes called, would have one foot in the world of poetry, another in the world of politics, and yet another ghostly appendage in something more unseen, unknown, provocative, undefined. And they would create something new and challenging, something that would inspire some and shock others. It was liberated theater, anarchic theater, in 1959, Julian explained the Living Theater to the New York Times. We believe in the theater as a place of intense experience, half dream, half ritual, in which the spectator approaches something of a vision of self-understanding, going past conscious to unconscious, to an understanding of the nature of all things. Some would call it transcendence. Others would call it fantasy. For Jim Morrison, it was all of the above. It was a new door. It was 1969, a new year. He was tired of the same old song and dance, tired of standing in front of the band on stage, hanging onto the mic stand, beckoning some unknown baby to light his fire, to love him two times, to find the next whiskey bar. People were strange, blah, 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 so fucking what? He loved crooners like Sinatra and rock and rollers like Elvis, but it was 1969 and times change, people change. He had to keep changing or else there was literally no point. He would bring the living theater to the stage of a Doors show, Miami. Miami was the kickoff for the biggest tour of the Doors career. If he learned anything from the living theater, it was that there was no time like the present. There was only the present. And what better platform to deliver this new promise of liberation, of paradise, of shock, than from the lead-off date of the conquering tour of the biggest band in America. America was excited to catch Jim and the Doors live on tour in 1969, but they had no idea what they were in for. He would provoke, he would incite, confront, perform, shock. He would break the fourth wall. He would break on through, there would be no fourth wall. And he delivered, delivered on that promise to himself to give the people something new, a night they would never forget. He'd never forget either, nor would the police. The entire country would take note. In Miami, Jim Morrison was ready to do the most shocking thing anyone had ever seen. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. All right, The 27 Club is scored and co-written by myself, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and editor on the show. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. The 27 Club is released weekly every Thursday. Season 1 features 12 episodes on Jimi Hendrix, which are all available for you to binge right now, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. You're going to want to give that a follow. 
So get out there and spread the word about 27 Club. And as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on my other show, Disgraceland. And you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.